uh, Psalm chapter 1. We talked about the, the genres of scripture, of poetry, and then even within the book of Psalms and poetry and, and scripture, there's subgenres. And some of them, as, as Jason just talked about, um, boiled down into one in particular called the wisdom. So there's wisdom psalms. That's the kind of psalm that we're going to look at this morning. Wisdom psalm from Psalm 1. Psalms is great. I, I'm excited to, to, to look at these psalms with you guys together. They, they help us understand the struggles of normal life, of, of everyday life that our faith struggle is not unique. That doesn't mean that it's not what you're experiencing isn't valid. It just means that it's, it's, you're not the first, most likely, to have experienced what you're going through. There's ups and downs of everyday life here on earth, and they've been experienced before. I think that should bring us some comfort. I hope that it does as we look through some of these things. Certainly, it's going to bring us some perspective that we need. There are moments in the book of Psalms where it's just like this crescending, crescendo where it's just this huge mountain of praise. And then there's times when the author is down in the, in the pit, the depths of despair. There's times of questions. There's quiet, times of, of doubt. There's times of great courage, and then there's times of fear and dread. There's moments of, of victory, and then there's remembrances of defeat. Moments that are deeply theological and messianic, and then there are moments where the writer of the psalm just says, God, where in the world are you? I don't even feel like you're here anymore. Do you even hear me or care? So it spans almost the whole gambit of human emotions. And really, Psalms is a great picture of just the normal life of faith. That's a, that's a comfort to us, I hope, as believers. It acts as sort of like a mirror, I think. And when you look at it, when you read the book of Psalms, when you open this up, you see yourself there a lot of times. Now, Jason talked with the kids about this last week and then again today about the, the genre of this. This is wisdom literature. This is poetic. And so it's kind of a challenge to understand. We looked at some of the reasons why last week. Um, but there's going to be themes as we go. And specifically, there's one in the book of Psalms, or chapter 1 rather, that I, I want to point out. Um, this one is a psalm of wisdom, as I said. And so there's going to be some explanation as like, hey, here's two ways of living. And if you choose this path, these are your expected outcomes. But if you choose this path, you have a different set of expected outcomes. Okay, I haven't lost you yet, I can tell. We're all together on this. That's not a difficult thing to understand. But Psalms 1 talks about that. So let's read this again together. We read it last week as an intro, but let's read it again this morning. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's the thing. Our culture does not like Psalm 1. And here's why. Psalm 1, without question, lays out right and wrong. Right? The righteous do this, the wicked do this. And then it just tells us the consequences. We don't live in a culture that appreciates black and white, right and wrong. We like options. Brothers and sisters, friends, there's no third option listed. Righteous or wicked. That's it. There's no third one. I was reading some this week on something that Paul Tripp said. We've used some of his um, stuff here. And he preached through the Psalms uh, several years ago in like 2008. And he said something about this Psalm that I thought was interesting. I want to read it to you. Now he's proving a point back in 2008. He's proving a point from Psalm 1 at how the world then is essentially the same world that it is now in that it's a moral world. There's clear right and there's clear wrong. And he said this, it's a world of good and bad. It's a world of true and false. It's not a relativistic world where one perspective is just as valid as the other, where one person's truth has just as much legitimacy as another. There's a right way for a husband to treat his wife and a wrong way. There's a right way for a child to respond to a parent, and there's a wrong way. There's a right way to use your time and your energy in a wrong way, and there's a right way to steward your resources in a wrong way. Now, if our lens is Scripture... I agree with Paul Tripp. He's right. This is the world as Scripture kind of ideals it, like this is the ideal world to live in. But whether, whether it was at one point or not, guys, I don't think that's the same world that we live in now. The way a child responds to his or her parents in our culture today looks a lot different than it used to. Maybe even back to 2008, it looks a lot different. How you respond to your child who is disobeying you looks a lot different, even than maybe 2008. More than ever before, our American culture is eager to just cling to worldly values. We're not even resisting them as a culture very much anymore, if at all. We're embracing them. So Scripture doesn't talk about the world this way, though. Psalm 1 and really all of Scripture makes this clear delineation, this clear distinction between right and wrong, good and bad, righteous and wicked. So here's something else that Paul pointed out that I think still absolutely applies today, Paul Tripp. He says that we live in a world of inescapable influence. He's so right on on that. We live in a world of inescapable influence. Just think about the media for a minute. Think about the songs you hear on the radio. Whatever the worldview is, whatever the life experiences are of that artist come through in their songs, right? And then we're affected by that as we listen. The news networks for sure have their own perspective and it absolutely comes out in how they report the news, right? Same goes for counselors, for politicians, for teachers, for the websites that we look at, for TV shows that we watch, for the movies that we see. All of these things are constantly influencing us. You are being influenced by something. It's always based on 
what the worldview of the person is or the organization is, that's going to come out in the media that they produce. Guys, we're being told what to think at every turn. Everywhere you look, you're being told what to think and who to believe. It's like um, I was mostly homeschooled in small Christian school, so I may not have quite as much a grasp on this as some of you public schoolers, but a school assembly in the gymnasium, five minutes before the assembly starts, what's going on there? Somebody say chaos. A teacher says chaos, so I'll believe you. Um, It's just everybody is talking. And it is. It's chaos and it's loud. Doesn't that feel like the last like two to three years in America? Right? Just everybody is talking and you have to have an opinion and you have to share it or else something bad, of course. They say, don't listen to them listen to me. Believe this. Think like this. You should interpret this this away. Here's how you should understand that. It's incessant. It's inescapable. We're constantly being bombarded by people's worldviews and their own morals. And then after we've absorbed those things, whether we intend to or not, we then make life choices based off of what we believe and what we hear and what we see. Do I raise my kids based on what the Bible teaches or what our culture says? If it's not glaringly obvious at this point, those two things are miles apart at this point. Do I prioritize my life? Do I spend time, money, energy according to what the media is telling me is important or what Scripture says? Which counsel do you heed? Who do you listen to? There are no shortage of voices in our world today. So Psalm 1 helps us in this. It helps us weed through these voices to figure out and come to the conclusion that there is right and there is wrong. There's black and there's white. There's truth that really exists. There are righteous people And there are wicked people. And you can't be both. You can't be righteous and wicked. There's one or the other. Your life is going to go based on what you believe and how you live one of two ways. And Psalm 1 lays those paths out before us. Not just that, and this is where we'll talk about at the very end today. Not just your life here, but your life after death depends on what you do here, on what you believe here, on how you act here. Do I delight in the law of the Lord? Do I meditate on it regularly? Or do I spend my time with wicked people doing wicked things? Am I embracing, am I comfortable with wicked ways? So to answer those questions really determines how your life here and the afterlife work. What happens there? Psalm 1, kids, this was a bonus question you were pointed to. Psalm 1 is considered a wisdom psalm because it serves as the foundation for pretty much all 149 psalms that come after it. Psalm 1 is the foundation. One commentator I read said, What the foundation is to a house, the keel to a ship, the heart to an animal, 
so is this psalm to the whole book. Verse 1, look at that with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The man who avoids, and by man here, just so we're on the same page, man or woman, person, the person who avoids the negative things that follow in this verse will be blessed. He says that the the man who is blessed will not walk, walks not. This little phrase talks about the course of a person's life, the walk, how you walk. Think about the song that we just sang, Life Defined. What defines your life? What does your walk look like? A person's walk is kind of that trajectory of their life. A six-week, an eight-week, a two-month, a six-month snapshot may not tell the whole story, but it gives you a pretty good indication of how a person lives their life, of what they believe. It says a wicked person not only walks in the counsel of the ungodly, but they also stand in the way of sinners. And they sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, when he says they stand in the way of sinners, he doesn't mean he's getting in the way, like keeping them from sin. It means that he's going and being involved in that. He's condoning it and being a part of it. The pattern of this person's life as you can see here in the first verse, is just to slip further and further into wickedness. And you can really understand that and figure that out well if you read the first couple chapters of Romans. That's what happens. We will slip into further and further wickedness. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Talking about the, the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates on it day and night. You're going to be blessed if you don't listen to ungodly counsel. You're going to be blessed if you don't get comfortable with sin. And this verse says that you're going to be blessed if you don't scoff at the truth. A righteous person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it constantly. Here's the thing. Only a a true child of God actually delights in his law. Sometimes when we're driving as a family, we've got a, like you guys, we've got a long way to get to anywhere. And so there's a lot of road in between us. Inevitably, inevitably we'll see flashing lights. A, A policeman has pulled someone over and the kids see it and they're like, oh no, the police. And so we're trying to help them understand, like, you know, the police are, <laughs> it's a good thing that they're there. They're helping people obey the law. They're keeping order. They're serving. They're protecting us. Uh, the only, and we try to explain this to them, too. The only reason why you have to be afraid is if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Right? And I think that's the, how it goes with the law of the Lord, too. A Christian reads the law of the Lord, and we rejoice in it. We thank God for these boundaries, for these consequences that keep us where we need to be going. But the non-Christian looks at that as all rule and restriction, and they resist it. And you, you know this. You were there once in your life. You spurned the law. You hated it. It reveals, it sh- the law shines a light on all of the sin in your heart, right? 
And that's its purpose. Its purpose is then to drive us to a Savior who can rescue us from that. But it's the natural response is to flee from the light, to flee from the law, to stop our ears up to it, to avoid it at all costs. It is not a delight for people who don't know the Lord. But the Christian, we, not, we don't just hear it. It says that we meditate on it. We don't just hear the Bible read at church and then go about our week and never pick it up again. We reflect on it. We consider its implications in our lives. In fact, we love it. I read another commentator that says that the habit of reflection or meditation, that's really what distinguishes a wise person from a foolish person. A Christian from a non-Christian. Do you reflect on what you read, on what you hear. A few months after Nikki and I had our first kid, Emery, um, it would be an understatement to say that we had trouble with nap and bedtime. It was rough. We had a hard time. And we tried, like many of you parents, we tried all kinds of things. You know, and the logical thing for me was, you're tired, go to sleep. It doesn't work that way. Figured that out pretty quick. So we thought, okay, well, that's not working. So let's just keep him up late. And then he'll sleep longer the next day. Right? I see some of you parents are shaking your head and laughing at me. Yeah, that doesn't work either. Bedtimes, nap time, man, that was, it was rough. And when we tried goofy stuff like that, it just got worse. It backfired, and then not only was he tired and crabby, but we were extra tired and crabby, and the cycle just continued. Um, So I don't know how we came upon it, but we read a book, and I remember in this book it said, talking about sleep training your kids, and it said, sleep begets sleep. So what, what that just means is that the more your kid sleeps, the better they're going to sleep. And the more they'll want to sleep, which kind of seems opposite to me at the time. I thought, well, if you're really tired, you want to sleep. But really, the better sleep you have, your body functions correctly. And then you're going to sleep better and enjoy that sleep better. Being constantly overtired, it just wrecks everything. It blows it out of the water. So we learned from that, praise the Lord, that the better sleep, the more sleep that our kids got, rather, the better sleep that they got, and the better sleep that they got, the more sleep that they got. Let's bring this back around. I think for the Christian, the same kind of thing happens with the Word of God, with the law of the Lord. The more you read it, the more you enjoy it. And the more you enjoy reading it, guess what? The more you're going to read it, the more you want to read it. So just like sleep begets more sleep, reading the Word of God for the Christian begets more reading the Word of God. It's a cycle. One leads to the other, and it's really a beautiful thing. So if you you don't love the law of the Lord, that doesn't automatically say that you're not a Christian, but it's a red flag that we need to just kind of keep there And as we go this morning, just kind of keep in our minds to evaluate. Let's look at verse 3. It says that he, the, the blessed man, the righteous person, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, 
notice something with me. What do you see about the tree? It was planted there. Didn't decide to grow in that place. The tree was put there by someone in a specific place by streams of water. Guys, our nature, by our nature, we are not friends of God. We are not planted by streams of water. We are not a tree of righteousness. It's really the opposite. By our nature, we're enemies of God. We're ungrafted trees. It's grace and grace alone that makes us a planting of the Lord. And only He can graft us in. Only He can plant us where we need to be planted. Also, this idea that this person is planted by the Lord signifies this permanency of connection. If you've been planted there, intentionally planted there, someone cares for you. Someone intends for you to stay there and to have that relationship with you. If you've grown anything, you understand, for the most part, you don't just stick it out there and then just let it go. You're pruning you're cutting back, you're fertilizing, you're trimming, all of these things to promote growth. So if you've been planted by streams of water, if a tree has been planted by streams of water, somebody's going to come back and check on it. Somebody's going to keep a connection there. Friends, Christian, you've been planted by God next to these streams of living water. He's not going to forget about you. He will not. And it says that a a tree planted in this way will bring forth fruit in its season. In its season, in the proper season. Only people who have been planted by the Lord will bring forth fruit. Jesus talked about this several times. You will know a tree by its fruit, right? A good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce fruit good fruit. This just bolsters this idea from Psalm 1, the righteous and the wicked. There's two categories here, not three, not four. It says that they're going to yield its fruit. Friend, if you're a Christian, there's going to be fruit in your life. To what degree there's fruit, maybe up to the Lord and you and your sanctification, but there will be fruit. It will be obvious And it comes at just the right time, in the Lord's time, and it says that it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful when, when we see this. So if you have been planted by God, just know there will be fruit, and it will be beautiful. And it says that you're going to be sustained by God. Look at what it says next. It says, "...its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." This is the confidence of the Christian that when you pursue righteousness, you're not on your own. If, if truth is what you are aiming for, it's going to set you free. It's going to be the moving force in your life and you will succeed. In all you do, you will prosper if truth is what you're aiming at. Even though your situation may seem overwhelming in the moment, remember that you have been planted You are continually watered and you will not wither. This is the confidence that we have as Christians. Look at verse 4 with me, moving along. 
Now we get the opposite. So the author here has set up one path for the righteous, and now he's setting up the opposite. He's contrasting these two. He's saying the wicked, they're not so. But instead, they're like chaff that drives, that the wind drives away. The wicked are the opposite of the righteous. By choice, they were not carefully planted. They are not well watered. And so they wither. They will eventually dry out, die, and then be blown away. Like chaff. This is the image of a threshing floor. And we're not super familiar with that at this point, but when wheat was cut down, it would be taken to kind of a windy place with a flat floor, and it would be the wheat would be kind of hit and smashed and broken apart and then tossed into the air where the wind would blow the lighter chaff away, stuff that isn't good for anything, but the valuable wheat would fall back down to the floor to be gathered up and used. That's what they were after. The chaff is nothing compared to the wheat. And sudden removal awaits the chaff. These are not good pictures for a category of a person you want to be in. The death of the wicked, though, that's just the beginning of their problems. They will not, verse 5 says, they will not stand in judgment. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. This is a reference to the final judgment. When, whether Christ returns or he calls you home before that, and you stand before the Lord, you will face him. The wicked are not going to stand. It means they don't have confidence because their ways were evil. Their ways were wicked. They don't have any comfort. They don't have anybody to support them, intercede for them, plead their case because they placed their hope in themselves not in the sacrifice of Jesus. Though people, think about this, so the people of God are scattered about the world now. One day, we will be congregated all together. And at that time, at the final judgment of God, an eternal, eternal separation is going to be made between the wheat and the chaff, between the righteous and the wicked, between God's friends and God's foes. Which category do you find yourself in today? Jesus uses other analogies. He's told stories about the wheat and the tares, the good fish, the bad fish, the sheep and the goats. Look at verse 6 in Psalm 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's going to be plain on that day which side you're on because the Lord knows your ways. All your ways are known to the Lord. Every step that you take, every thought that you think, whether it's righteous or whether it's wicked, He sees your walk. If nothing else, I hope that you you hear this today. The Lord's eyes are not closed when it comes to judgment. Psalm 11 that we read before talked about that at the very end. The Lord's eyes are not closed when it comes to judgment. He's just he's not just covering his eyes and randomly dispensing punishment or blessing. That's not how it works. He knows the way of the righteous 
and he knows the way of the wicked. He's fair, 100%, completely just, but he's not random. There is a standard by which every person is going to be judged. And Romans 1 tells us that no one is without an excuse. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Does that strike fear in you today? If it does, maybe that's a red flag of your walk with the Lord or lack thereof. The Lord knows your heart, wicked or righteous, and he's going to bring it to light. And if he knows your heart, because I don't know it, you can play the game and be at church and act like you're a good Christian, but God knows your heart. And if he knows your heart, then he's the only one who can really judge your heart. And be assured that he's going to. There is a day when that will happen and his judgment is always right and it's always true. No one will say, you got it wrong, Lord. Philippians 2 is another passage that assures us that every knee one day will bow and every tongue one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Your knee will bow to Jesus either by choice now or by compulsion then. But it's going to happen. The way of the wicked will perish. Nothing is more certain and nothing is more dreadful Another commentator said, what the fool does in the end, the righteous person does at the beginning. God is going to dispense perfect judgment according to truth. We can be assured of that. And for the person who's pursuing righteousness, that's a comfort to us. We thank God for that. We want him to be righteous. We don't want him to bend the rules just for us. We want him to be fair This is a reminder of God's faithfulness. He always is. And even though it doesn't seem fair all the time here on earth, right? There are situations, we looked at this in Ecclesiastes, there are situations where we think, man, the the, the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. How how does that work, Lord? That's a reality sometimes. And even though that seems like the case, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, And the Lord will judge accordingly. Now I want to go back for some application as we close. Back to verse 1. And Jason touched on this with the kids this morning. He he taught this to the kids at Awana a couple years ago. And uh, and I was listening. And I appreciated that. So I'm just going to rip off his sermon to the kids and tell it to you guys today. Uh, but really, I think there's a lot of wisdom. Look back at verse 1. There's that progression that I already mentioned, right? That slip further and further into wickedness. People start off walking in the council. Like maybe you just hear some, take some bad advice, some ungodly advice from somebody. Maybe you're not seeking it out, but you just, you don't know the difference. You aren't, you're not discerning enough to see if that's good or bad, and you take bad advice. Maybe you, you know, you're just walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're not super comfortable yet, but you're just walking through. Where do we go next? Well, then all of a sudden you're standing in the way of sinners. You're not, you know, you're not resisting people from sinning, keeping them from sin. You're now standing there. 
You're not just walking by anymore. You've stopped and you're looking around. You're like, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not a big deal here. But before long, what's the next one? You sit down in the seat of scoffers. So it's this progression from walking to standing and then to sitting. Now you're not only comfortable, but you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. Now you're not just comfortable, you're making fun of people that pursue righteousness. What a sad place to be. It might start innocently enough, but it gets to where eventually you're going to lie down with the wicked in their judgment too. Unless God's Spirit intervenes in your heart, in my heart, in a person's heart, we naturally grow more and and more wicked. That's the way that our hearts, that's our default. Think about this, though, too. If the enemy wanted to present the worst aspects of sin to try to get you in it, a lot of us would say, hang on a second. I, I recognize that that's wrong, I don't want to do that. But if he just slips something in real quiet at the beginning and gets his foot in the door, any number of amount of people will follow that path. He just sneaks it in, but it becomes a deadly trap. This is just some simple truth, some advice that I heard a lot growing up. Young people, this is especially for you today. Be careful who you spend your time with. We must be in the Word, okay? So I want, I want to understand that. We are commanded to take the gospel to people of all nations, everybody. We should have some kind of relationship with people outside of the Christian faith. We need that. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ and to preach truth and peace to people who are far off from God but we cannot make bad company our only company. You can't make bad company your main company and think that you're going to be okay. We live a couple of miles away from the Mississippi River, and I think it's cool. Uh, Even in this time of year, you can go down and, you know, it's almost iced over, and that's a strange thing for the Mississippi River. But how many of you guys like fishing in in the river? I don't think I've actually ever been fishing in the Mississippi River. Anybody eat the fish that comes out of the Mississippi River? Okay, catfish, I'm I'm guessing. So some people really love the taste of catfish. My family's not one of them. I'm not one of them. Uh, We like bass and bluegill. And uh, I had some, was it walleye, Taylor, at your place? Man, that is some good fish. Catfish, eh. I can take it or leave it, okay? Where do catfish spend most of their time? What's on the bottom of the Mississippi River? It's got a nickname, right? The Muddy Mississippi. There's grime, there's stuff at the bottom. So that gets filtered through the fish's gills and affects the way that they taste, right? What's the lesson here? You are what you eat. No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is how you spend your time and where you spend your time affects you deeply. It affects you in a big way. 
The catfish spend their time on the bottom sucking mud through their gills and it affects the way that they taste. You can't spend your time with wicked people willingly, with wicked people, approve of their ways, get involved with their ways and expect to not come out different. You will be deeply affected. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 just lays this out real clearly. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The companion of fools. You may just be the friend of someone who's a fool. Jason, I think you shared this a couple weeks ago when you preached about your friend who was just in the car of someone who had broken the law and they went to jail. They didn't do it, but they were an accomplice to it. They were just there. The companion of fools will suffer harm. The trouble is, and I think especially those of you who are older, that have a little more life in your rearview mirror, you can attest to this especially. The further you go down the wrong path, the blinder to it you become. You don't realize the danger that you're in as much as you did because sin has an effect. It hardens your heart. It confuses your conscience and it begins to shut out the light of truth. Psalm 1 has put before us two ways of living. And this is the wisdom in it. There's the righteous, there's the wicked. Every person, including me and you, will fall into one of those categories. There's not a third option. Our culture would like to tell you there's other options. There's not. The Bible doesn't give any. Righteous or wicked, sheep or goats, good fish, bad fish, good spring, not a good spring. There's a delineation. One or the other. And when we convince ourselves that there is a third option, we're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves to our true condition, which may be more dangerous than anything. Please understand this morning that real joy is not found in selfish living. It's found in surrendering to Jesus. Giving up the wickedness that eventually leads to ruin. What happened? Think about the prodigal son. What happened in that story before he turned around and went home? He was eaten with the pigs, right? That was the low point for him. It wasn't until he started feeding the pigs, living with the pigs, that he went home. It wasn't until his life got so unraveled and became, he became so disgusted with where he was that he realized where he had gotten. It won't be until we realize how disgusting sin is that we run back home to Jesus. Just like rivers eventually lead to the sea, wickedness eventually leads to ruin. It leads to destruction. How do we avoid that? Here's the question that we have to evaluate and think through. How do we avoid that end? How can a person be saved from a life of wickedness and from a death of eternal destruction? There's only one way. By beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, by putting our faith, not in our own ability to save ourselves, not in our own goodness or righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus, we admit freely and say, I'm not a tree planted by streams of water originally. 
God, I need you to plant me there. I need you to make me into the kind of person that pursues righteousness, that meditates on your word day and night because it doesn't come naturally. I need the spirit to lead me into that. You do too. We have to call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. And he tells us that we will be saved if we do that. Christ Jesus, friends, is the only hope for perishing sinners. And you can meet him today. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know where this this message falls. I know its effect on my heart this week and today. But Lord, likely there's people here that are listening that they don't know you for real. Maybe they thought they did, but maybe they didn't care to know before. But they've recognized today by your word that they've not been pursuing righteousness. They're not really saved. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they wouldn't get comfortable with where they're at. They wouldn't be all right with it. They wouldn't try to convince themselves that there's some other option available for them on the last day, but that they would recognize that there is one category or the other, saved or not, righteous or wicked. And Lord, we know that you still save today. You have told us, believe on the Son and you will be saved. Lord, I pray that many, all who are listening that aren't genuinely converted this morning would hear this and say, I I desire to have Jesus be Lord of my life and that they would put their faith in you this moment today. May they not wait another day. Lord, as we sing this last song together in reflection, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts, not just an outward expression, Lord, but an inward change that you would change us from a life of ruin and wickedness to a life of surrender to Jesus and real joy. In your name we pray, amen.